It's Wednesday, February the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are political correspondent Jennifer Bray, our education editor, Carl O'Brien, and our health editor, Paul Cullen. You're all very welcome. We wanted to look today at where Ireland is at right now in relation to the COVID pandemic and to the challenges which the government currently faces. So, Paul, you're very much the logical person to go to first. I think like everybody, I'm kind of on a sort of a slalom roller coaster at the moment, reading various articles in the Irish Times and elsewhere over the last few days. You had quite a positive analysis of where we are at now on Saturday, looking ahead towards the spring and the summer and the likely trend of numbers and vaccination and various elements. But then uh, you were one of the bylines on uh, the lead story in Tuesday's Irish Times, which was much more doom-laden, a, a European warning about what was coming down the track at us. Um, who should I believe? Yeah, well, the first thing is that things change every day. Um, and uh, I'm currently doing a bit of work on, on first anniversary type articles. We're, ba- we're at that point, obviously. And... Um, you look back and you see how many things you you got wrong or you predicted wrongly. I think I, I, I foresaw repeated waves of the virus hitting us, um, but I thought that the uh, size of each wave would would dim- diminish. And of course, that didn't happen over Christmas. We got this massive surge, uh, which has knocked everybody for six. Obviously, also there's great fatigue there and weariness and resignation. I think, um, and there's a lack of positivity, um, notwithstanding a few good days of, uh, of sunshine outside this week, which is maybe finally broken the winter spell. Um, I think um, I was very struck by that ECDC report you referred to. Um, the minute I looked at it, it was profoundly gloomy uh, in a way that any of their previous reports uh, weren't. You do have to look at it from the point of view that most of continental Europe their current interest at the moment is keeping out, um, in particular, the variant that started in the UK, and which predominates here. So we've had our struggle with the UK variant. Um, it was our Christmas present and um, we've come through it, I suppose. But the likes of Germany, as you know now, are closing their borders with parts of Austria, Czech Republic. They might even do it with um, France, which would be unprecedented, um, because they're trying to push out this uh, UK variant. Uh, and then there are other variants coming falling coming behind. So I think the ECDC report is is coloured by that. Um, if I'm being positive, um, I'm saying um, several things. Firstly, obviously we're traumatised after what happened uh, in December and January. Um, we've come through it. Uh, we've suffered loss of life, but we, our our health service got through it. Um, we've come down off those high peaks um, pretty quickly, and we're going in the right direction. Uh, and so, as I said, we've coped with this UK variant um, and seen it off at a time when the the the, the weather is improving and the prospects for outdoor activity is is are better. Um, and then there's a vaccine. Um, now, there's a lot of noise around the coverage of uh, the vaccine rollout at the moment, but there are only a few facts that are relevant. One is that we don't have enough, and we desperately want it, um, and. Um, the reasons for that are, you know, circumstances beyond our control, largely because of issues that happened on a pan-European basis and they've been well played out. Um, so we're getting vaccine and we're putting it in people's arms uh, at a modest rate at the moment, but as quick as, as we're getting it. Um, 
there have been a few uh, glitches here and there, but I think the coverage of them have been magnified somewhat. But we are looking uh, onwards and upwards in terms of vaccine rollout, I think. Um, we can see that there will be more vaccine approvals and there will be greater quantity now that some of these companies have got their manufacturing expansions worked out. So um, while it's going to take time and we're impatient, um, it's only going to get better on that score. Uh, and then just finally, um, the caveat is, and there are always caveats and Stephen Donnelly's fam- becoming famous for them, but um, it, we go back to the variants and um, whether obviously some of them are more infectious or more transmissible. Um and that may have an impact on how we reopen society, starting with schools. Um, and then also a second worry is that some of them are maybe uh, probably are more lethal, more dangerous, uh, and uh, may also be able to get around the, the defences offered by uh, some of the vaccines. Um, but that's not insurmountable either. There are booster shots, there are adaptations to the existing products. They'll take a bit of time to do, um, but they should be ready by the autumn. Um, so we're, we're we're settling into a different phase where the vast majority of uh, serious cases and deaths um, should not be happening anymore now that we've vaccinated the most vulnerable populations. But we are going to have a battle against various forms of COVID-19 for quite some time. And it's not going to be over by any means by, by the summer or any time like that. And in that piece on Saturday, you talked about sort of a, the difficulties, obviously, of, of looking ahead. And you've, you've described how, how those apply to your own forecast in the past. But looking ahead, let's say, to summer and what might or might not be possible in terms of what might be open and what might be shut. And it seemed to me to be a relatively positive prognostication that some kinds of activities will be able to return to normal, although obviously there are some things involving large assemblies of people and perhaps certain kinds of indoor events which won't. Would I be right in saying that one of the things which might be very different this time around as we emerge from, from this lockdown is that international travel will will remain much higher up the political agenda, certainly than it was last summer when it definitely contributed to the second wave in the autumn? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the difference. And, and the reason is uh, partly what I uh, referred to earlier is the worries of other countries to keep out a variety of different variants. We have some of them here already. So that battle is lost. I think there will be uh, an improved situation over the summer whereby I think there will be, you know, reasonable freedom of movement and activity. Uh, I'm not sure about, you know, how much hospitality and so on will open, especially indoors. But, you know, some battle lines are going to have to be drawn for the autumn for a return of another wave and to make sure that wave is as small as possible. Now, it won't have the lethality of other waves because most people will be vaccinated and most of those vaccinations will provide the protection that we want from them. So, yeah, I mean, things will be getting better, but not permanently so. Uh, and you're right about international travel. I mean, you know, for in, for the EU to be putting up barriers in the way that it is with almost no comment, really. I mean, I was looking at the page of the German embassy uh, for Ireland uh, this morning and it just said, you know, <laughs> there is no travel from Ireland to Germany. We don't want you, basically. Um, and it's remarkable how, how little little comment there has been about that, particularly when you think about the struggles and the debates that we had about this last year, um, when some people wanted to put restrictions on on international travel, but we're not, there was no hearing for that. And that has changed now, and it's changed in Brussels and, and Berlin, uh, and that's going to influence us too. It always seemed a little odd to me that we were uh, we were barred from travelling from one county to another within Ireland, but it was still perfectly open to us to travel to, to, to other countries in the European Union. But that's, that, that's by the by. I want to go to Carl because education has been the 
foremost subject on the agenda this week, and it is right now. And I should say that we're speaking sort of mid-morning on on Wednesday the 17th, and we're awaiting, I think, imminent announcements, Carl, later today, but perhaps more likely tomorrow or Friday, on what's going to happen with the leaving certificate and a planned return to uh, school. Yeah, so on the leaving cert, you know, we're finally in a position where students and their families uh, will get some clarity and certainty over what exactly is happening with the leaving cert. Uh, so you've had these intense discussions have been taking place behind closed doors between the Department of Education and teacher unions and school managers and student representatives over the past week and a half. And uh, so there will be briefings uh, today, Wednesday, with uh, Norma Foley and her cabinet colleagues. And uh, what we're likely to see is a formal announcement of the format of the Leaving Cert exams being made uh, as early as maybe Wednesday evening or possibly Thursday, Friday. So what do we know about the exams? Well, it looks like uh, students will be given the option of a modified version of calculated grades. Uh, So that was the system in place last year where teachers effectively assessed their own students. Uh, And they would also have the option of sitting written exams in June, uh, subject to public health advice uh, permitting that. Uh, It's also likely that, you know, oral practical performance Uh, aspects of subjects will go ahead in some form. Uh, It might be different to the formats uh, students are familiar with, uh, but it looks like they're going to happen. Uh, And they're a big chunk of marks. You're talking 20 to 50 percent of of, um, subjects. Um, It's a big uh, difference from from our day when when we did uh, the Leaving Cert. It also seems likely, as many expected, the Junior Cert exams will be cancelled to make way for a focus on the Leaving Cert to get everything over the line. Um, so that's where things are. You know, it's been a long and tortuous road, you know, like like on the one hand, it would have seemed obvious from the outside. Why not opt for a calculated grade system like we did last year, given the uncertainties? But, but this whole process has been, you know, clouded by the competing priorities of teacher unions who want traditional exams to go ahead. And then you have students who want to return to the calculated grades and the big conundrum is you know how do you offer a choice how do you offer a system which allows um you know the best of both worlds so so that's that's effectively this is the compromise and uh, i suppose the question is will the teacher unions fully come on board and uh, if you look at what happened last week with the asti abruptly just pulling out of talks you know nothing can be taken for granted uh, until everything is approved by, by the union executives and that's likely to happen very soon uh, but you would think that teachers look likely to be on board because they've had a couple of of key things which they've had concerns about have been addressed. And one is, you know, placing students in this rank order of merit. They've been very sensitive about that. And we're told that there has been a solution on that uh, which should ease teachers' concerns. Another concern has been the lack of um, data and coursework on which to base a calculated grade uh, so to, based on the student performance, uh, we're told that is also going to be addressed in the announcement. And uh, and also the fact that the exams are going ahead, are likely to go ahead in some form, uh, also kind of assuages some of the teacher concerns. So that that's where things are on the Leaving Cert. So when we talk about the modified version of calculated grades, those things you've just described there would, would represent a couple of the modifications. I mean, the other element which caused a lot of aggro, I suppose, last autumn was in relation to certain schools complaining that they suffered because of because certain 
I suppose their past performance wasn't taken into account, and that was a decision which was taken quite late in the process. It was taken because that would seen that was seen as potentially privileging um, some schools over others. Uh, do we know where they're going to be with that, or is that going to be? We have to wait for the big reveal. I don't think they're going to go into that detail uh, when the announcement comes, um, partly because there's a legal challenge on that precise point. So you have 50 cases waiting in, in, in the High Court and a lead case being taken at the moment. And we expect a ruling on that very, very soon. But that is on that precise issue of, you know, school profiling, you know, and did that unfairly penalise some students over others? So I think that will um, determine um, the approach. But when we talk about calculated grades, you're really talking about two things. You know, you're combining teachers' assessment with a standardization process of some kind. And that standardization process really aims to ensure consistency and, and fairness in, in, in results. So there's different ways of doing that. And, and you know, school profiling is just one strand of that. So, so we'll see what happens there. The real issue, though, I think this year is that you know, you're going to have two separate sets of results, very different sets of results. So you have your calculated grades and your leaving cert exams. And uh, so the question is, you know, what, how do you standardize them? How do you make sure they're comparable? How do you ensure that one group isn't uh, unfairly penalized over the other? And the way I see it, it's very hard to see uh, any other solution other than there being major grade inflation again. So that's because the calculated grade results will be more generous. You know, teachers are more generous to their students. It's just the way things are, you know. And uh, and the Leaving Cert results in the exams aren't as generous, you know. So so the question is, which results do you pull up or pull down to make sure they're standardised? And I think the political, I don't think there's a political appetite to pull down Leaving Cert or calculated grade results to match the Leaving Cert exams because, you know, that's being, you know, quote, unfair uh, to students, I think it'd be much more palatable to pull up the Leaving Cert results to match the calculated grades, you know. So that's going to lead to more grade inflation. There are more applicants than ever applying through the CEO system, 80,000 for the first time. Uh, it's up uh, about 7,000 on last year. Uh, so that's, I think, the danger is that's going to really heat up the CEO points race this year. And uh, we saw last year, the points reaching record levels. You had 70% of courses uh, jumped up significantly in points. You had courses breaking the 600-point mark for, for the first time in, in many areas. So that, that, that is an issue, and it does raise wider questions, you know, about um, what kind of a system do we want? How many students uh, should, are we comfortable going to third level? Um, do we have too many going to third level? In fact, are, are the alternative options like further education and apprenticeships, is there a big status issue with them that the students aren't opting for them? You know, there are kind of big questions where we're going to need to grapple with. But for the time being, we're really looking at these kind of emergency responses and just getting through you know, the next few months. And I think we'll have to stand back and take stock of, of all of these bigger questions um, around um, progression beyond second level soon enough. Before I go to Jen, can I just ask you, does grade inflation matter that much? Because it's really just a question of who's going to get into college or does it have a uh, a negative deleterious knock-on effect for the people doing Leaving Cert next year when things hopefully get back to normal a bit? Yeah, well, it, it definitely, I think the biggest losers out of grade inflation are people who are applying for CEO courses based on the results that they achieved in previous years. So if you look at, there's 80,000 people looking for a college course uh, this year, about, you know, 
50,000 of them will be setting the Leaving Cert this year or perhaps last year. The remainder will be applying on results that they got in 2019 or 18 or 17 and so on. And their results are significantly lower than than you know the 2020 candidates and more than likely the 2021 candidates. So, you know, that that is um and it's very unfair to them through no fault of their own. You know, it's just because of the systems that we've designed to get ourselves out of, out of this hole, if you like, you know. So they're they're the biggest losers. Um um so yeah so it it do, it does impact very much so on on students and uh, and I think there is there is an element of you know having a sustainable level of grade inflation it's much easier all around just to keep it um uh within a certain parameters uh, but when it's runaway inflation it does cause problems at at a number of levels like that Jennifer um, I was listening to Aon O'Reard on Labour's post spokesman in education having a go at the Department of Education yesterday and has been doing so for a couple of weeks, basically saying they were caught with their pants down and they should have had a plan in place because this was always a possibility and that they've been scrambling over the last while and that as a result, they've been very slow in coming out with a plan, not just for the Leaving Cert, but for example, you know, the Junior Cert. They could have made that decision to cancel the Junior Cert four, six, eight weeks ago, couldn't they? I mean, there was no need to be hanging about on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this has been one of the um, kind of long running criticisms of the Department of Education and indeed the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, that decisions that seem like obvious decisions to take and maybe were obvious all along are being taken a little bit too far down the road. And that we're in a situation now whereby every week that you, I, I don't maybe not use the word lose, but every week that you go forward without coming to a resolution makes it a little bit more difficult and obviously more difficult for, for parents and, and most of all students. Um, so I think the Labour Party have a, have, have a point there. Having said that, I do understand that, you know, these talks are complicated. And, you know, when you're dealing not only with stakeholders and unions um, and the expectation of parents and students, as well as, I suppose, the political reality of it, it's not quite as simple as just saying make the easy decisions early on and deal with the rest of it later. And I think even in terms of the advisory group that they have at the moment, you know, which meets to discuss these issues, you know, they've been meeting since before Christmas. Um, Now, you know, I was looking through some of the minutes of them and and kind of trying to see where the pace was after Christmas. And it does seem to me, actually, from reading back, that there wasn't a massive impetus at that time to really um, make sure there was a solution in place early. Now, having said that as well, obviously, a lot of us were taken back. I think many of us were taken back by the scale of infection and what happened over Christmas. So perhaps that's another one of those things that you're kind of looking around corners a little bit. But I do think that there's merit behind what the Labour Party say um, because, you know, we've been dealing with this virus for a year now. We know an awful lot more now than we did this time last year. So, yeah, I, I think that criticism will, will stand up. Carl, what do you make of that? I mean, you probably you have a better insight into what's been going on within the department. Yeah, no, I, I think Jen is, I, I'd agree with her, you know, I, like it is, it's tri- It's a tricky situation. Um, I think on the outside, I think these decisions are really obvious and very clear, whether it's reopening schools or, or, or the Leaving Cert. But I think the problem is, you know, the the education system, it's very fragmented, you know. Uh, so even something like reopening schools gets quite complicated because you have, uh, you don't have this school system that's controlled by the department. You have individual boards of management who employ teachers who are overseen by patron bodies. Then you have layers of school managers and then you have very, very powerful teacher unions. Uh, so you have a lot of these uh, very powerful stakeholders there uh, who need to be brought on board. So it's not as easy as the department making a decision 
and everybody rowing in with that. And we just saw that happen in January when they tried to reopen the schools for special education and for leaving certs. You know, the unions shot it down. And and when they reopened uh, on the third time of asking, it wasn't the department that announced the reopening of schools. It was the unions. You know, it was extraordinary. You know, it shows you the power that is there. So so that that's kind of what you're dealing with. There's a lot of those structural issues um it's similar, I guess, to the to the health system really, and that um, you know, its origins are, you know, these were services provided by voluntary bodies. So you still have that that kind of, those kind of structures there. So I think yeah, I think on the outside, yeah, decisions look easy. I, I wouldn't fancy being the Minister for Education trying to bring everybody on board, and particularly when you're dealing with unions like the ASTI, who are particularly prickly, you know, and, and we've seen um, what they uh, are capable of doing last week. And uh, and the ASTI, are, are, they're an unusual union, you know. I think most unions are very mindful of how their actions are perceived by the general public. Uh, the ASTI has never been unduly concerned with how it is regarded by people, it acts in the interests of its members, and uh, and you can criticise that. You know, one member famously described them as the the North Korea of the trade union movement um, a few years back, with with no friends and and using up their political capital everywhere they went. But on the other hand, um, ASTI uh, leadership will tell you we are just acting uh, on. Um, uh, on the say so of our members and trying to achieve the best possible deal for them, you know. But um, but but you are dealing with some very tricky stakeholders there. So um, yeah, I think um, I think easy for Aon Riordan <laughs> to say that. Uh, be interested to see how he would get on if he was in the ministerial hot seat himself. Always a reasonable a reasonable response to a, to an opposition criticism. I like to think of the ASTI as the Millwall of the trade union movement. Paul, just to come back to you on and on vaccines, um, if the rollout, with all the caveats, goes more or less according to hopes and plans. And uh, Michal Martin was being very optimistic about the, the one jab Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is hopefully imminent in the next six to eight weeks. Um, then the, this state, Ireland, will have achieved a level of vaccination by September, which the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland will have achieved perhaps by the, the start of May and when you achieve that level of vaccination, when a substantial amount of the population has been vaccinated, all the vulnerable groups, the over 65s, the people with underlying conditions, all the frontline health workers, all the people working in essential, uh, in essential industries, and they've all been vaccinated. And essentially, some people suggest then that the fatality rate of COVID will be similar to the fatality rate of influenza. There's undoubtedly going to be political pressure in the UK and in Northern Ireland to uh, to open up their societies quicker than ours. And the cross-border issue has always been the huge unaddressed question in this whole thing. And are we going to enter a new phase of that with a vaccinated Northern Ireland and a far less vaccinated Republic as we move into the summer? Yeah, certainly. I think it's already arising. I mean, even in our own context, um, you're already seeing questions from myself and other journalists at Neffet Briefing saying, when can uh, older people in nursing homes receive visits, say from a health care worker who's been vaccinated? And that can has been kicked down the, the road by saying, well, we have to get everybody in that sector uh, vaccinated and we have to see and so on. Uh, um, but I mean, these pressures are going to rise uh, on two levels. One, one is on an individual level, psychologically, obviously, 
if you've been given a vaccine, um, it's a form of superpower, I suppose, isn't it? And you want, you want, you're going to want to use it. And then on a government level, too, you want to be able to show that you are making strides and that um, some sort of normalisation is, is occurring. So at the moment, uh, north of the border, I mean, they're around, aren't they, around one quarter of the population is, has had at least a first dose. So about five times the level that we would have. And you're already seeing um, something less of a border effect in terms of cases. I mean, this is not scientific, but, you know, uh, for the last six or eight months, most of our worst affected counties have been around the border. Now at the moment, apart from Monaghan, that's diminished. And, and you know, that seems to suggest that a, a diminished cross-border effect already. So there are some positives out of there. This hasn't been worked out. You know, right through this pandemic, there's been talk of North-South co- cooperation, but very little of it. And although I suppose we are uh, coordinated at the moment in the sense that everywhere, everywhere is locked down, that's not going to last, as you say. Uh, and the pressure to open up in the north is going to be greater. Uh, you think of Donegal, uh, holiday homes and so on, and how that's going to be enforced. So to be honest with you, there is no roadmap for this. Or if there is, it hasn't been published yet. And uh, the, uh, I suppose the official dumb here in the Republic is desperately trying to bank down any uh, anything that would uh, cause people to move around more, to be more assertive in their in their freedoms, even if they're vaccinated. And they can get away with that for a while. But as you say, that's not going to happen in the North very soon. So I don't have a clear answer, Hugh, uh, but it's, it's increasingly going to be a conundrum that we're going to face. I mean, on the positive side, these people, you know, we've seen the very positive results from Israel. These people from the UK are going to, you know, they're going to have... Uh, big reduction in cases and in infections and serious infections and hospitalizations and deaths. Um, and there is some evidence that of reduced transmissibility as well for people who are vaccinated. But the, uh, the, but the, the, the proper data on that isn't in, in yet for anyone to make um, decisions about opening up anything at the moment. And then there's the issue of the variant. So you can hide behind the issue of the variants at the moment by saying we can't travel too much because, let's say, the, the variant that starts in South Africa is really dangerous. And we don't have much of that. We have to stop that uh, being passed around. Um, but that won't last forever. No, and, you know, summer's going to come and grannies are going to want to see their children and grandchildren and people are going to want to travel across the country and they'll start asking questions if particularly if as you say similar to to Israel where the death rate really starts going down quite and the serious illness rate really start going down quite quickly they'll they'll have legitimate questions and they'll say what's the plan yeah and officials are mindful of this and they say they have said in response to these kind of questions that we really sympathise with the burden of people, for example, who haven't seen family members because they're in nursing homes for for many months and maybe even longer. Um, but they're not willing to offer up any um, opening up just yet. Um, so what are we talking about? End of March, perhaps by the time oh, those sectors are done. And then perhaps then you, I think you'll see some limited uh, relaxation of visiting rules, for example, or, or stuff around that. Um, but it's going to be very, very slow. Jennifer, we it's things are still very different from what they were, let's say, last October during the the second wave. There seems to be very little sign of um, conflict, certainly overt conflict between uh, Neffet and the government over over opening things up again. There's very little lobbying going on right now, at least publicly from industries, perhaps from the construction industry. I'm not sure if you're hearing anything on that. Um, 
So it's all very quiet. There doesn't seem to be the political pressures that were around, you know, four or five months ago. Yeah, I think this wave of um, the pandemic is very different, politically speaking, um, to any of the other ones that have gone before. And I think that is because, partially because of the variant um, and also because we have the vaccinations that are coming on board now at the moment. There is certainly a sense in government that nobody really wants to challenge publicly challenged Neffet after what happened at Christmas. Notwithstanding the fact that any time government ministers or the Taoiseach or whoever are out in media interviews and they're asked, you know, why didn't you follow the Neffet advice to the letter of what they recommended in terms of, you know, having one or the other hospitality or home visits, etc. Um, and in the in the beginning, I think, of the year, a lot of politicians were very reluctant to say that they had done anything wrong. That sort of changed in the last couple of weeks. We saw Michal Martin giving interviews where he said that, you know, perhaps there were there were mistakes made. In that regard, so just that appetite is isn't there as far as I can see to to challenge Neffet. Um and I think that the government in particular are relying on um the surveys that they do where they track the public mood for restrictions at the moment. And I think by and large the public are still in favour of restrictions if it means bringing the case numbers down and actually getting back to some form um, of normal life later on. But I do think that this week in particular, ministers who do their research and who are properly thinking about the future did take a look at that ECDC report very carefully. And I would agree with Paul in that um, it's quite significant. And one of the things that that report said um, that I know that different ministers have been talking about and are talking about um, on background is this idea of non-pharmaceutical interventions. So that's your restrictions that we have at the moment. And we're obviously in level five. And I think in that report, um, from the ECDC, they said that unless um, these restrictions continue or are strengthened uh, in the coming months, there'll be a significant increase in COVID uh, cases and deaths, and that should be anticipated. Um, and that although vaccinations might mitigate the effect of that, um, and you know it might get easier in terms of the seasonality, in terms of warmer weather, um, there'll still be a severe level of uh, COVID cases and mortality notwithstanding that if these restrictions are eased and that report said that public expectation um, around the easing of restrictions needed to be carefully managed. So this really feeds into at the moment the fact that anytime journalists ask at these you know government press conferences when they or whatever may be going on about when can we expect hairdressers to reopen, when can we expect hotels to reopen, when can we expect as Paul mentioned visits to nursing homes etc cetera, etc cetera, or traveling outside our county most ministers absolutely do not want to go there. And I think the ones who do are sort of notable by being out on their own. So I'm thinking of Leo Varadkar, who recently at a press conference was talking about, you know, maybe next month you'll be able to meet people outdoors. And then maybe after that, we could look, you know, at hairdressers beyond that, personal services beyond that. But everybody else that I can see is absolutely shying away from setting any kind of dates on anything. Uh, and they're worried that if, you know, we set a date and we say you'll be able to sit outside a restaurant in mid-May after everybody over 65 has got their second shot of the various vaccines, what happens if there's another variant and or if the current variant uh, continues to keep levels quite high and the public are, I suppose, uh very depressed by that um, and you know you lose the buy-in of the public and that's another thing that that report from the ECDC said they said you know you need to carefully manage public expectation but you need to level with people in terms of the vaccination campaign they said if you're making any changes whatsoever to let's say the prioritization list um, you need to tell people that in order to keep people 
I suppose, bought into the the current level of restrictions, etc. So they're very mindful of all of these things at the moment. Having said all that, we know that next Tuesday, the government, um, the current plan is to launch a new living with COVID plan. Now, there aren't that many details out about that at the moment. Anybody I've spoken to says, I was sure it's not that different to the last one, which is the framework um, released last year. It's quite similar. It's just a refresh. But there are, there are indications that they might, now this is just a might, just from what I heard last night, they might look at the various vaccination stages. So we know like where the over 65s, when they'll get their second dose by non-patient facing healthcare, etc. We know mid-May is kind of the date for that. There is indications that they might tie those different vaccination timelines to when you could expect uh, restrictions to be eased, but that they won't set dates on it. So they won't say you will be in a hotel uh, in your county for a you know a weekend by July or whatever, but they'll tie in the sort of the, the vague parameters. That obviously comes with its own problems too, because as we know, Stephen Donnelly, when he first set out the timeline for how many vaccines we can expect. And this is where this idea of September came from, was first emerged in a letter to TDs when he said, you know, we can expect all adults who want to receive the vaccine to receive it by September. And we know now that given all the problems with AstraZeneca and different bumps in the road vaccines, he's come under a lot of political pressure. You know, are we absolutely going to stick to the September deadline? Can people actually expect this? And and we've seen all that play out. They're very reluctant to go down that road as well. Um, so really, they're all tied into each other. The vaccines, the variants, and the extreme reluctance to tackle Neffet, to get it wrong, uh, and to lose uh, public buy-in, I suppose. Yeah, personally, I think people should grow up and rather than try to hold people to account and saying, you, you promised September, you lied, you know, it's such nonsense. It's perfectly clear that there are contingent elements in this that, you know, that can throw these kind of plans off track and, you know, that that should be expected. But there's another part of this, there's another piece of this, Paul, which you've written about in the past, which hasn't really come up, which is, you know, what do you do, let's say, once you've opened up parts of the economy? We failed last year in maintaining an effective contact tracing, um, effectively addressing outbreaks when they occurred locally and stopping them from spreading. Um, there's some talk that we're better equipped or going to be better equipped to do that this time around. Do you think that's the case? I'm not so confident, really. Um, yes, it's the fork in the road issue again. So third surge, and now we're going to face a third fork in the road. So you get your cases down to a low level. In the first surge, we got them down to a very low level and then relented and opened up for the summer. In the autumn, we struggled to get them down to a decent level and it turned out disastrously when, when things opened up before Christmas. So at the moment, um, the officials are still saying we'll be down to, what is it, 200 to 400 by the end of the month, cases a, a day, um, and then lower then maybe by mid-March. Um, that's not enough, um, really, to be honest with you. And I actually, I think we're going to be at the higher end of that because there's been a stalling over the last seven days. So what do you do? So um, obviously... Um, there are a growing number of political parties and people and scientists who adhere to some form of a zero COVID um, uh, f- formula, which uh, says that we should drive down lower and lower and lower. What they don't spell out is the price that you'd have to pay for that, which is probably that schools wouldn't return till the autumn, um, by way of one example. Um, and what do you do about uh, resistance by people who don't... Um, to, who, who don't comply, do you come down the heavy on them? And I mean the heavy, as uh, some countries are, do. So there are, you know, I'm, uh, as you can hear, I'm sceptical about that. But at the same time, they have espoused a coherent philosophy, which the government has failed to do 
uh, or a coherent approach, uh, a, a holistic approach to this. Um, so the task for the government now is to do that. And But uh, all we're hearing at the moment is, is hyper-caution, but that doesn't really solve the problem of what you're going to do when that fork in the road is reached. Um, as you said, um, yes, we will be doing, for example, retrospective contract tracing, which we weren't doing last summer. We should have been. So what happened last summer? Um, a lot of people had been drafted in from various state, um, various parts of the health service and elsewhere to work in testing and contact tracing um, on a temporary basis. And when the cases went away, they were moved back to their old posts. So they, they deconstructed the capacity that they had built up there uh, rather than uh, creating a, a you know, a specialised unit that could deal with things like retrospective tracing. So now that this time they have employed new staff specifically for that purposes, so they do have that. So you might be hopeful that they will do that, but really for that to work, um, you really have to get down to single or double digit daily cases. And that means, you know, uh, lockdown until Easter and beyond or, you know, level five type lockdown until, say, the other side of Easter, I would say. Uh, and then you might say, well, we can we can we can make that operation work. So we haven't heard from the government on wh- whether they want to do that. We've heard some mutterings that they 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 feel that they will do this. But, um, you know, really, you know, from what I hear from people who are involved in the process at the moment, it's really quite worrying. You know, um, uh, you know, I think there's risk attached to it. For example, uh, all cases are not equal. Every day we have so many hundred cases, for example. But if that case is, for example, a passenger on an airplane, that's a high risk case because lots of people on the plane could be infected and they could pass it on. If that person is, a, you know, a member of a couple who've never gone out of their door, that's a lower risk case. But I've seen no evidence that the the cases are prioritised um, according to their risk, for example. And I've heard um, people tell me that they're not. Uh, so that's really kind of worrying. So uh, there's a way to go, basically, uh, to soup up our operation. On top of that, we talk about variants and the need for sequencing. We are now sequencing 10% of our cases, which is pretty good by European terms. But Europe's, uh, as our ECDC report pointed out, its uh, performance on that scientific aspect of, of the uh, epidemic has been pretty poor, you know. And ironically, the the, the UK has led the world uh, in terms of its ability there. We could learn a few things from the UK in that respect. I want to go back to you for our last thought, Carl, just on the basis of what um, what Paul is is saying there. Given the caution in government, which he describes, um, the um, the the contingency in terms of how the numbers might go, and the extremely powerful trade unions, which you were talking about earlier, there's a reasonable chance of slippage in whatever plan is laid out this week, isn't it? And also, then in relation to that, do you have a sense of how much damage or harm is being done? to the children and young people who are losing so many months of their education? Yeah, I think definitely there is a sense that this week that the pace and the scale of the return of school will be um, smaller and delayed than had been expected. You know, um, up until a few days ago, the, the belief among unions and government was that we would probably have all the schools open uh, by the end of March. Uh, that looks less and less likely. You know, the the idea is get the priority groups back first. So they are primary school, junior and senior infants. Um, at secondary school, you're talking about leaving certs and children with additional needs. So um, it's get, getting them back. Um, but like Ronan Lynn was saying earlier in the week, um, you know, it would be prudent to take stock 
between each phase to determine its impact on, on virus transmission rates. So that definitely would suggest you couldn't do that in March. So you are looking then at, at April for the return of, of some year groups. Um, in terms of the damage, yeah, well, we know from, from the last lockdown, uh, the most damaging impact of school was on the most vulnerable pupils. So you're talking you know, students with additional needs and special needs and also children from disadvantaged areas who either you know, lack devices to engage online or don't have um, home settings which are you know, conducive to learning. You know, they don't have quiet study areas and, and so on. Uh, so you know, you're talking about a year's disruption to education and there's been various international studies looking at what are the long-term implications. And I think there's researchers in Oxford you know, putting a monetary value on, on, on the you know, the, the lifetime losses that could be linked to that for those children, particularly in disadvantaged communities. But we do know, you know, anecdotally, talking to principals of schools in disadvantaged areas, you're talking about significant numbers of people just not engaging online. You know, they've disappeared. And um, some cases, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent of students. So the real issue is to get those students re-engaged in education. So when they open up, making sure that they are back in the classroom. Uh, and there are safety nets out there. There's homeschool liaison officers and these types of services. But, you know, they're very patchy and uh, and they're certainly not at the scale to be dealing with that level of, of disengagement. So that's going to be a real, real challenge. And, and also, I think the system is going to have to look at how... Are we going to compensate for this learning loss? You know, are we going to look at summer education programs, for example, um, for, for those children who need it most? Uh, and we're talking about special needs and children in disadvantaged areas. These are all issues we're going to have to look at. And as Paul was mentioning, actually, the UK government has been very proactive on that. I think it's got a, a billion pound catch up program planned um, uh, for the rest of the year for, for those students who, who who need it. So we're not really talking about that yet. It's like the system is paralyzed by the leaving cert and now school reopening. It's like the bandwidth is only, you know, um, large enough to take that. I think we'll probably begin to look at those bigger questions once the dust settles on, on those two particular issues. Yes, indeed. Carl, thanks very much indeed for that. Thanks also to to Paul and Jen for joining us today. Thanks to our producer Suzanne Brennan and our engineer JJ Vernon. If you want to get in touch with us, please do email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We're always very happy to hear from you. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.